Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. Today's interview is with David Wright Falade, whose historical novel Black Cloud Rising is about a guy named Richard Etheridge. He's a real former enslaved man who became the leader of a group that tracked and killed Confederate soldiers. And what's fascinating about this novel is that, for a whole host of reasons that you'll soon hear in this interview with NPR Scott Simon, Etheridge felt conflicted about the new power imbalance, about killing white Confederates. Now, when I first heard that part of the interview, not going to lie, I was a little confused. Like, how could someone possibly be ambivalent about this power shift? But of course Etheridge was, because he was human. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how Black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. Black Cloud Rising has been taking shape for a long time. In the mind of the novelist David Wright Falade, he was a graduate student at Virginia Commonwealth University in the early 1990s when he began to hear about the life of Richard Etheridge, who was born into slavery on Roanoke Island, the biological son of the man who enslaved him and taught how to read and write by his white half-sister. Richard Etheridge would become a leader of the African Brigade during the U.S. Civil War, a unit that hunted down Confederate guerrillas in North Carolina in the fall of 1863. David Wright Falade now teaches English at the University of Illinois and is a fellow at the New York Public Library. He joins us now from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. What should we know about him when we meet him at, I guess, about the age of 21? Richard Etheridge, he just always stood out from a very young age. Um, he was a leader in the slave community in that on Roanoke Island. And then when the war breaks out, um, yeah, he's made a sergeant almost right away, and, and that continues through his life. And even though Black Cloud Rising is, is a Civil War novel, tells the tale of, of their trip into North Carolina to free slaves and fight guerrillas, the backstory is the thing that kept me going. For me, it was the motor. Richard Etheridge understanding, dealing with the fact of his paternity, and as a soldier returning to that place and possibly confronting his former masters, who are also his white family. Yeah. Well, tell us about Sarah. Uh, There's a relationship. Yeah. The Etheridge women, they were prominent in the community and just active too. So I imagine Sarah, the white half-sister, as this person who, intelligent, um, strong-minded, understands herself in that way, and yet as a woman in 19th century America, is sort of limited too. So she sees a connection with Richard, not fully recognizing her own privilege above him. What um, what did it mean for the soldiers of the African Brigade to, to go from being enslaved to holding the power of life and death over white people? It seems so clear that it was complicated and difficult. The real-life African Brigade, they were redesignated the 36th uh, United States Colored Troop. And they end up serving as guards at the prisoner of war camp in Point Lookout, Maryland. There was this trouble because some of the some of the soldiers, the black soldiers who are guarding these Confederate prisoners of war, 
they were sometimes called the master, right? They were conflicted and, yeah. yeah. Uh, in the book, I have um, Richard Etheridge's friend say a thing one time when he witnesses an event that happens early in the book, you know, where the, the power is clearly reversed, right? The, the black men are in charge and they've captured a Confederate guerrilla. And his friend comes up to him and says, the bottom rail is on top. And I took that quote directly from men of the 36th when they were guarding these, these prisoners at this you know, prisoner of war camp in Maryland. So I think they were conflicted. The world suddenly looks radically different. Tell, tell us about the brigade's commanding officer, General uh, Edward Augustus Wilde, one-armed, red-bearded abolitionist, and it was hard not to think of John Brown. Yeah, yeah. I found him going all the way back to Fire on the Beach. I just found him completely fascinating. Fire on the Beach is your, your 2002 nonfiction book about uh, Richard Etheridge and uh, uh, his career in uh, P. Island, North Carolina, establishing what became the Co- uh, Coast Guard Station. That's right. At the point of Fire on the Beach, I knew very little. I do more research later. But he's um, from Brookline, Massachusetts, born into a, uh, you know, sort of an older, a distinguished older family of doctors in particular. He trains as a doctor. But when the Civil War breaks out, he doesn't join as a doctor. He joins as a soldier, right? He's commanding a white unit first. And he has a severe wound to one arm at the Battle of Bull Run, recuperates, he rejoins his unit, and at the Battle of South Mountain, he loses the other arm. That, as though that is not enough, he, he stays active, and he then goes south to raise a unit of former slaves there in the south. So he's a radical abolitionist, and I envisioned him as, you said John Brown, as a zealot. Yeah, he is a zealot. For him, it was scorched earth. His approach was scorched earth. The scene that opens the novel, which is fairly dramatic, where he has slaves whipping their former master, he is that guy. One of the things I thought that was important, though, in talking about the black soldiers, so at first, he is, he is exactly what they want in a leader. As they're serving with him over the course of this, this scorched earth raid through North Carolina, they start to question also, you know, they're back home. And while surely some of them want revenge, some of them are also like, I know these people. I know this place. And so their, their view of, of Wilde shifts too. Yeah. Where does the novelist take flight from the historian when you write a novel like this? For me, it was really in trying to get into Richard Etheridge's, um, not just his head, but the, the human behind that. Hence the importance of Fanny, the, who would be his wife. Hence the importance of, of Rachel and then his relationship to the White Etheridge's. Um, it must have been com- complicated for him in his life. Richard Etheridge survives the war. When he leaves the service in 1866, he's stationed in Texas at this point. He leaves with Fields Midget, the same friend. They join together. They've clearly been lifelong friends. They go back to the Outer Banks. The Outer Banks is now free. It's a refugee camp, Roanoke Island is. There are more African-Americans on Roanoke Island at this moment than there are whites. He doesn't go to the refugee camp and establish a home. He doesn't move in with his mother. He doesn't move in with Fields. He moves in with his white half-brother. Oh, mercy. Yeah, he's clearly in this interesting, complicated place where he's trying to understand the world and his place in it as an American. You have fun with a New York Times reporter. <laughs> who often narrates his own... Let me try one of the lines. Ready? Okay. A Sabbath silence brooded over the mire. (laughs) 
or to keep a straight face. Yeah. Um, is that just comic relief? And look, we journalists deserve it. Uh, or are uh, you trying to suggest something about journalism as the first draft of history and all that stuff? It, it turns out that if you Googled him right now, Tewksbury, that article would come up. It was a journalist named, I don't know what his first name was, but it was Tewksbury, and he accompanied them. And it was the first draft of history, right? As soon as the raid happens, yeah. he prints this in the, in the uh, New York Times, which is wonderful. But also just that 19th century style of prose, I, it offered a little comic relief every now and then. But when I'm quoting him, I'm actually quoting from him. I'm not, yeah, I'm not oh. making it up. E- even more damning <laughs> than I thought then. Um are you done with Richard Etheridge? I don't know. Um, or wait, let me put it this way. Mr. Novelist, is he done with you? That's an even better question. For me to say that, yeah, I'm done with him would maybe be, yeah, that would maybe be wrong. There's a, his life during the Reconstruction when he moves back in with his brother, when the Reconstruction comes to an end, uh, the station is burned down. The, uh, his Coast Guard crew performs this really heroic rescue for which they're only recognized 100 years later. In 1896, two years later, the Wilmington race riot, the Wilmington racial massacre, happens just down the coast. I think there's a rich story there about Richard and the Reconstruction. We'll see if he's done with me or not. David Wright Folliday's novel, Black Cloud Rising. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology, hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.